0: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening again, and thank you for tuning in to ADH TV. You can now watch me on the big screen. You download the ADH TV app, there it is, for free on the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. It works on your TV, your mobile or your iPad. Our viewers are loving the new app and the fact that I'll tell you a bit about that next week. How much they're loving it, but it's soared up the charts, I've got to tell you. And the fact, because everything's there. And the fact you can watch me live and on demand. So get on board or, of course, you can continue to watch on the website. The website is adh.tv. But have a go at the app. Search adh.tv on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. And remember, you can have your say by emailing me, Alan Jones at adh. Tonight we'll be joined by the new Federal Senator for the Northern Territory, Jacinta Price. I supported her nomination for the country Liberals because she's a tremendous woman of courage. She's authentic, she understands the plight of many Northern Territorians and of course, Indigenous Australians. In fact, she has a better understanding than most of Aboriginal affairs and how we can improve those communities. She's a true conservative. Jacinta Price winning pre-selection and then being elected into the national parliament, is proof, is it not, that gender quotas and all that nonsense about introducing a third chamber are not needed? Jacinda got there on merit. I'll also be joined by Terry Barnes, who is a policy consultant and was a health policy advisor for the Howard government. He has great insights and plenty to say when it comes to the future direction of the Liberal Party. I'm sure he, like many others, who would describe themselves as liberals, no longer recognise the party they once joined. This is a serious debate that must be had. I explained last night why, and I'll say it again, Australia needs strong oppositions. All you have to do is look at Queensland, where thankfully David Crisafulli has turned the joint around, but for years and years the opposition up there was inefficient and couldn't land a punch. As a result, the public are forced to cop a Labor government now filled with hubris. The same applies to Victoria. In the last 50 years, the Liberals have been in government for only 20 and haven't come anywhere near since 2014. The Victorian Liberals are beyond a mess and look to lose November's state election and sadly lose easily. I'll have something to say about that, about Victoria later. Then there's WA. The Liberals have got two seats in the state parliament. So who exactly is holding Premier McGowan to account? Strong oppositions are a vital component of a functioning democracy. So let's hope the Liberal Party can lick their wounds and get on with opposing bad government policy and providing an alternative for voters. The true Liberal heartland is crying out for a genuine Liberal voice and a genuine Liberal home. Stay with me. Well, look, the Liberal catastrophe of last Saturday night is now being matched by the rank stupidity being volunteered as to where the party should go to reclaim political ascendancy. I know the Liberal Party doesn't have a monopoly on stupidity, but there are plenty of stupid people who will be given a voice purporting to speak for the Liberal Party. One of them, sadly, is the New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane. Now, I must confess, I launched Matt's campaign at the last election. He is a thoroughly decent human being. But in terms of politics and Liberal philosophy, he is completely unwired. Many say he belongs to the Greens. I note he's written an opinion piece in the journalistic home of the left, The Guardian. And according to Matt, the electorate has, quote, stopped hearing a Liberal Party speaking for its values," unquote. Matt, you're absolutely right. But you're the cheerleader who doesn't speak for Liberal values. The secure country you talk about can only come from a strong economy. Our resource export revenue last year was $351 billion, $351,000 I wonder where that money is going to come from under your abolition of coal and gas. And where do we then find the money for the needy, the elderly and the disabled, if your policies, jumping into bed with Labor, are going to abolish the very industries that have provided our wealth? Matt Keane then says that, quote, the previous government indulged in culture wars, egged on by the right-wing commentariat, unquote. Well, it's the so-called right-wing commentariat, and I suppose I'm one of them, that has opposed the real culture war and that is, The indoctrination of our children in the classroom. The kind of stuff that Matt Keane talks about, demonising coal and gas and our national economic strength, is fed to our school children, aided and abetted by the Matt Keanes. So our young do think the world is coming to an end and we're destroying the planet, therefore knock off fossil fuels. But Matt Keane ploughs on that women earn less than men for the same work and women retire with half the superannuation of men Yet Matt Keane has been in the Parliament of New South Wales for over 10 years. What's he done about these issues? Diddly squat. It's easy to dish out this rhetoric, but when you've been in the Parliament for 10 years and these problems still exist, you become a living, breathing and walking example of political impotence. Then I note and I quote, climate change risks an environmental catastrophe, unquote. I wonder does Matt Keane with his Bachelor of Business from the University of Technology, no more than the chief former chief scientist to Barack Obama, Professor Stephen Coonan, who said last year, a professional scientist, chief advisor to Barack Obama, he said last year, quote, leaders talk about existential threat, climate emergency, disaster, crisis. But in fact, when you actually read the literature, there is no support for that kind of hysteria. The science is insufficient, he said, to make useful projections about how the climate will change in coming decades, much less what effect human beings will have on it." Unquote. Professor Coonan is a self-declared Democrat. Matt, you'd be one of them if you voted in America. Professor Coonan said he was, quote, "'Increasingly dismayed by climate alarmism." Unquote. Then we have Michael Schellenberger, who was a world-renowned environmental activist for 20 years. But he wrote a book the year before last, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. And he apologised for, quote, the climate scare we, that's all these environmental uh, action takers, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years, unquote. And he said of climate change, quote, once you realise how badly misinformed we have been, it's hard not to feel duped unquote. That is what you're doing, Matt Keane, misinforming people when you talk about climate change risks and environmental catastrophes. But Matt Keane talks about, quote, science-aligned emissions reduction targets of between 45 and 60 percent by 2030. That's in eight years' time. Well, okay, Matt, let's talk science. I would choose the scholarship of Professor Richard Lindzen, the world-renowned American atmospheric physicist ahead of your scholarship. The former Alfred P. Sloan, Professor of Meteorology, no less, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, was a lead author of chapter seven, Physical Climate Processes and Feedback of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's third assessment report on climate change. And Professor Lindzen says, since Matt Keen is concerned about a core conservative value to act as a custodian for future generations, well, Professor Linsen says of those future generations, quote, what we'll be leaving our grandchildren is not a planet damaged by industrial progress, but a record of unfathomable silliness, as well as a landscape degraded by rusting wind farms and decaying solar panels, unquote. Well, I'll make one final point for now in relation to what will be a push from the Keynes and others of his ilk to embrace even more of Labour's climate change alarmism. Let me say this. Yes, the Coalition did poorly on Saturday night, but they finished up with 35.9% of the vote, and that's after the Teals and the Greens had taken their share, 35.9%. One Nation, who don't preach this Matt Keen nonsense, 4.9%. Palmer's party who don't preach this nonsense, 4.1%. The Liberal Democrats who don't preach this nonsense, 1.4%. That total is way beyond Labor's 33%. Total, 46.3%. If the coalition can't find a leader who can mould these disparate interests into a formidable and winning political force, then we don't deserve to win. But I'll tell you something else. We don't need to embrace the Matt Keane nonsense. Let them talk their green rubbish, but let the 46% and others get on with economic and environmental reality. Well, it's pleasure time because my first guest is a person who I would describe as a legendary Australian, that will embarrass her, but I don't care. A true patriot, Jacinta Nampajimpa Price. And I'm delighted to say, She's a freshly minted senator for the Northern Territory. She's a member of the country Liberal Party up there, a politically conservative party operating in the Northern Territory. She has served as a councillor for Alice Springs since 2015. She's currently the deputy mayor of Alice Springs. She was born to an Anglo-Celtic father who was born in Newcastle, that's New South Wales, and a Walpiri mother, Bess Price, who served in the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly. Philosophically, Jacinta is outstandingly strong on criminal justice policy, arguing that the issue of black-on-black violence is ignored in favour of discussion about racial discrimination against Aboriginal Australians. Jacinta Price is also the Indigenous Program Director for the Centre for Independent Studies. She's got three sons from her first marriage, but she experienced domestic violence in a later relationship. I'll tell you something. She can sing, she makes beautiful music and her folk, soul, country album, I'm giving it a plug, Dry River was launched in 2013. I'm delighted to welcome Senator Jacinta Price. Jacinta, congratulations. I mean, how does that sound, Senator Price? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm still, I'm still getting used to it. It's, it sounds odd. I sort of someone says senator, and I look around. I'm like, where, where? Oh, that's right. It's me. <laughs> and,
0: and what did your son, what did your son say? Call you?
1: Oh, look, my, my youngest. He's eighteen. is like six foot two, and and he kissed me on the forehead after he left after election day, and he said bye just Senator.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How good is that? Good? Now, look, on the serious stuff, you and I have talked often publicly about the things that Canberra want to ignore, that in 2020, mm-hmm. in one Indigenous community alone in the Northern Territory, you and I talked about 184 children, victims of abuse, and 35 men faced 300 charges. Then you went to Canberra in March last year, joined by the Cousins of a 15-year-old girl who had been raped and died, and you tried to get the Morrison government to address the issue of Indigenous girls being raped and beaten, the media were nowhere to be found. Now, I've got to say to our viewers, in the same month of March, there were women marching and spitting and hissing about inequality. Not a single one was interested in Jacinta Price and the plight of raped Aboriginal girls. Jacinta, how can you change all this now?
1: Well, I've got the ABC flat out knocking on my door now. It's quite interesting when uh, all of a sudden I've received the title and they all want to know me now, So, uh, and there is no escaping uh, me and the issues that I want to be able to confront, uh, particularly, you know, from the Senate as well. Uh, And given also, I think, the fact that there's likely to be about 10 Indigenous MPs uh, in the Senate and also in the House of Reps, uh, altogether, and therefore it really is a good time to discuss yeah. these issues yeah. and I don't think anybody should should um, ignore them, co- uh, even if they have been electors.
0: I'll come to that in a moment. I just want to make another point because I remember also at the last mm-hmm. federal election a Greens candidate posted a picture of you drinking from a coconut with a caption which said, it's not every day you see a coconut drinking from a coconut. Now, you are a conservative politician, so no one condemned that disgraceful behaviour, did they?
1: That's right, no, because it's okay to attack. You can't attack uh, women unless they're conservative women and you can't attack Aboriginal women unless they're conservative Aboriginal women, then they're um, easy game. Um, Mm. Well, supposedly anyway. And that's that's certainly, you know... No longer. I'm going to smash that stereotype. No no, No more. No
0: longer. Jacinda, Penny Wong is a very intelligent lady and she is the new foreign minister. But she announced this week that her grand plan after nine years in the political wilderness... Her first act as foreign minister, she, saw, she said, would be to deliver a First Nations foreign policy. Have you any idea what that is?
1: It sounds absolutely absurd. I don't know what that's supposed to mean and uh, how that's supposed to come about. Uh, the only idea of any kind of uh, dealing with foreign People in a traditional context for Aboriginal people, if if you were a foreigner and you entered onto our land, if you came from our traditional uh, warring tribe, then you, we likely tried to uh, kill you. Uh, otherwise, if you were friendly to us, uh, then you would we would allow for you to enter on our land. I don't know if that's what. Well, um, let's we'll try this. That, was, that is what okay. Penny Wong is proposing. Well,
0: let me ask you a more difficult question because she went on. The policy will somehow quote. Weave the voices and practices of the world's oldest continuing culture into the way we talk to the world and in the work of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. What do you think that means? I don't understand.
1: Uh, it sounds like some wishy-washy hippie Byron Bay talk. It's this whole romanticism <laughs> of what people on the left think about Aboriginal culture that don't have a single clue about what Aboriginal culture is actually about, uh, you know, pretending as though we're these spiritual beings that hover above the earth uh, and go om or something. I, I don't know. I'm well, then just... she also wants to it appoint...
0: Is... She wants an ambassador for First Nations peoples to, quote ensure First Nations peoples have a stronger voice in our engagement with the world and deepening their long-held ties across countries of the Indo-Pacific. Now, Jacinta, I thought Albanese, Anthony Albanese told Australians on Saturday night that he would unite the country. Is this likely to unite us?
1: Listen, uh, I don't know. I mean, are they are they talking about the Larrikin or the younger people that have had exchanges with um, with with the Macassans back in the day and and traded um, uh, what's that little sea slug thing? <laughs> so I don't know. Are they uh, again? Uh, it's this. It, it is this. It is a divisiveness that's going on. This idea that somehow the you know Aboriginal people are now venerated um, incredible. We're all just incredible, wonderful people, regardless of who we are as individuals. It's just our uh, ethnicity that makes us great. Uh, and and we're being held up. And it's like, I guess it's like um, you know that 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 kid in the class, that the teacher's pet that is is being held up on a pedestal, and the rest of the class are going to go, hang on a second. Well, what about us? aren't we? Special yes, as well, yes. aren't shouldn't we yes, deserve that absolutely. sort of treatment? I mean, We're all Australian for crying out loud.
0: Crying out loud. Look, today is the fifth anniversary of the Uluru Statement, which seeks an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. There are two things, Jacinta, that many Australians don't understand. The first is they feel locked out of any discussion about this. I know that the National Constitutional Convention at Uluru on May 26, 2017, was the culmination of talks with around 1,200 Indigenous people in all states and territories, but Jacinta, what about other Australians?
1: Well, look, not just other Australians, but as far as I know, the process was such that uh, I think in New South Wales you had to be a member of a land council to participate. So it was an exclusive club that met. And let's let's not pretend like the whole process was about grassroots. It was not. It was led by um, elites like Megan Davies, who is now, uh, you know, claiming credit for it all. It had nothing to do with grassroots, but it was using the place, Uluru, because it's seen as uh individuals yep. who um, don't know about traditional culture as the sort of the place for Aboriginal people to meet and spiritual, mm. you know, background and all that kind of romanticism well, again. Yeah. That was all used to come about with this well, well, idea. But well, let me take I know it let me let me take you sorry,
0: sorry to interrupt. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Let me take you to another step. We're told Indigenous Australians have led a campaign for a voice in the Constitution. Now, I don't know what that means, but you've already made the point that there are already ten Indigenous Australians in the Parliament. But a voice in the Constitution—what does that mean?
1: Hmm. I'd like to know, like just like the rest of Australia, um, what that means. And I have made the point over and over since becoming Senator that there are going to be 10 voices within Parliament. So why would we need a voice to Parliament if they already exist, uh, you know, 10 within parliament which i think is more than uh, what is representative of the popu- uh, you know the indigenous population of the country anyway uh and again i just see it as a as a money wasting uh venture that um, that's going to turn into another huge bureaucracy that is going to be run by elites uh, you know it's I I mean, we don't have
0: have 10 tradies in the parliament. We don't have 10 disabled people in the parliament. We don't have 10 teachers in the parliament. So this is a pretty significant representation. Are we being told now that we're not happy with that? They're not happy with that. I mean, at the end of the day, people don't quite understand what a voice in the Constitution means, but I note that, Mm. and Australians wouldn't know what is meant by a voice in the Constitution and that Australians, we're Mm. told, will decide at a referendum whether a voice should Mm. be written into the Constitution. How can they decide that if, as you just said, they don't know what it is?
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, there's this all, all this talk, but the, the the referendum has to go to the Australian people. And it was, I mean, it was pretty clear what the referendum, what our previous referendum uh, was all about. And and Australia, uh, you know, overwhelmingly supported Indigenous Australians with that one. But this one is completely unclear. Uh, I don't believe... It's not representative of the, the want for all Indigenous mm. people. Again, there's over 700,000 of us. It's not as if we... All think the same, uh, and again, we've got ten representatives within Parliament. I mean, they just don't know how to solve these issues, and I've got a fair idea of how we might go about it. Uh, it's just about stopping, oh, well, stop attempting to um, reinvent the wheel and creating and, more bureaucracy, and, and
0: do something about the problems that you've identified in the Northern Territory, which are far, far more important. Uh, I'd like to talk to you down the track about this. This is about truth telling. Uh, apparently a truth-telling commission, whatever that is, and a treaty ahead of (laughs) the Indigenous voice in Parliament. I mean, I thought a treaty was between two separate countries. So, I mean, Australians are not ignorant or uninterested, but they don't understand what is meant, I assume, truth-telling commission. I don't know what it is. Jacinda, we could talk all night. I mean, the key here (laughs) is you're going into the Parliament and you hope you'll get some justice for those people in the Northern Territory, Indigenous people, who have been ignored in terms of the violence that they've suffered.
1: Exactly right. The most marginalised exist in some of the remote parts of the country. We have a huge middle class of Aboriginal people doing all right. So it doesn't, you don't automatically, you're not automatically disadvantaged because you're Indigenous, but those that really are marginalised are those whose third you know, first language is not English. Uh, who who do live in those remote parts of the country, and that's where the focus
0: should be, on not Absolutely. on the
1: elites uh, who good are taking things like a voice to parliament yeah, how good and she? treaties um,
0: how good forward
1: she? in this country. Yeah,
0: and and Layla, mm-hmm. the little girl, the 15-year-old, found raped and hanging from a tree with plant material in her buttocks at Tennant Creek. And Jacinda wanted the federal mm. government to address that issue. She got absolutely nowhere. You'll always have a forum here, Jacinda. Lovely to talk to you. Congratulations and good luck in all you do. And we'll talk again soon.
1: Thank you very much, there
2: Alan. It's Senator always a pleasure Price. being
0: able to talk. Senator Price. And she can sing as well. Now, look, I've been around on this election front for many years, but while I predicted before the election what was going to happen, there are still amazing and fascinating phenomena emerging from Saturday. The first being that a party can win government, majority government, with 32.8% of the vote. But let's go to Victoria, where the Liberal Party are almost as dysfunctional as the party is in WA South Australia and New South Wales. But could anyone give you more ammunition than Daniel Andrews? Earlier this month, Daniel Andrews labelled questions over whether he leads a corrupt and unethical government as ridiculous. If that weren't true, why was Andrews grilled, in secret, by Victoria's Anti-Corruption Commission into branch stacking and the misuse of funds within the ALP. Stay with me, because this gets to a political point almost beyond belief. We learned earlier this month that Premier Andrews was called before the Anti-Corruption Commission, and somehow or other, a decision was made to conduct the inquisition behind closed doors. Mind you, I believe that is as it should be. If the evidence then determines that charges should be laid, that is when individuals should be named. But Andrew was asked at a press conference at the end of last month whether he led a corrupt and unethical government. Now, Mr Andrews wasn't going to say yes, was he? He called it a ridiculous suggestion. But hang on. The red shirts rorts before the 2014 election saw the Victorian ALP repay almost $400,000 of misused taxpayers' funds. Daniel Andrews was asked if that was evidence of an unethical pattern, to which Andrews said no. That's completely and utterly wrong. Hello? 400,000 of misused taxpayers' money to help Andrews win the 2014 election? The source of all of this is the former Labor power broker, Adam Somurek, who was also the subject of investigation, but he's complaining about the Anti-Corruption Commission leaking to the media. Where have we heard that before? But interestingly, Somyarek has accused Premier Andrews of knowing a lot about Somyarek's socialist left factional operations. Stay with me. Somyarek tweeted, Dan knows a lot about branch stacking and socialist left operatives organising the socialist left from MPs, including ministers' officers, unquote. He accused the Anti-Corruption Commission of protecting Dan, which makes you wonder where the Liberal opposition is in Victoria. I'll come to that in a minute. Leaked reports of the draft conclusions of the Anti-Corruption Commission suggest it's found that the culture within the Victorian ALP was unethical and led to the misuse of public funds and provided jobs for factional mates. Note the reference to the Victorian ALP. Surely that entitled the voter at the federal election last Saturday to ask if this is endemic in Victorian Labor. Surely a vote for Labor in Victoria last Saturday in the federal election endorsed this stuff. After all... The anti-corruption report ostensibly found that it is, quote, highly likely the misuse of publicly funded staff and the employment of family members and factional allies for party or factional purposes and nepotism has occurred for a much longer period and is much more widespread across Labor than moderate Labor, which is Mr Somia faction, unquote. It went on, these unethical practices are embedded within the Victorian Labor branch, and are systemic to all the factions. Unquote, and the report apparently revealed that Andrews had conceded that to the inquiry. This is Victorian Labor as they went to the polls last Saturday. Well, what happened? Well, this is what the voter determined. In every seat won by Labor, with the exception of seven out of the 24 that they won, there were significant swings to Labor. The Labor Party, about which the anti-corruption commission found that the misuse of publicly funded staff and the employment of family members and factional allies for party or factional purposes and nepotism. The commission found these unethical practices are embedded within the Victorian Labor branch. Well, well done to the Liberal Party, because this is Victorian Labor that held all its seats last Saturday. In 17 of them, there was a swing to Victorian Labor. And they want two seats from the Liberals, Higgins and Chisholm. Clearly, the Liberal Party in Victoria couldn't begin to prosecute a case against Victorian Labor. They should fold up their Liberal tent and fade away. Surely this is proof that the Victorian Liberal Party is politically hopeless. Well, as I forecast, last Saturday was in many ways going to be almost the nadir of the Liberal Party. Votes lost, seats lost, and a potential leader gone in Josh Frydenberg. Terry Barnes writes regularly about health, social policy and politics, in particular for the Spectator Australia and Spectator UK. He has worked with federal and state governments and in politics for 25 years. He was a senior personal advisor to two federal health ministers, Michael Wooldridge and Tony Abbott. He was a senior public servant in several senior portfolios for 15 years and for several years oversaw the Commonwealth's funding responsibilities under the Australian Healthcare Agreements. His insights into the Liberal Party, as to where it has been and where it's going, are worth noting. And I thought we'd talk to him, and he joins me. Terry, thank you very much for your time. I mean, post-mortems are beneficial. So, answer your own question: How was Scott Morrison defeated?
2: Well, look, I think uh, it's, it's three things. One, the it's time factor. Two, I think the Labor Party successfully framed this campaign as a referendum, not on Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, but on Scott Morrison, the man, his character, his personality, his behaviour. But the third thing, I think, of course, was the fact that the Liberal Party itself found itself being squeezed very hard from both the left and the right. You know, we're talking about the teal independence and the, their climate agenda and their, their um, certainly the professional women who have been behind it. But on the other side, I think there are a lot of disillusioned to, coalition, especially Liberal Party voters who jumped ship, who went with the the so-called Freedom Parties or with the other... minor parties and independents, because they were just sick to death of the coalition in yeah. the way that <coughs> they felt that the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister had abandoned traditional Liberal principles and values. So yeah. all that was the perfect storm. Self, yeah. Some self-inflicted, some politics and some it's time, I think.
0: Yes, excellent point. You say he wasn't saved by his economic management or the unemployment rate of 3.9%, the lowest in 50 years, nor by the fact that the post-COVID economic bounce back was one of the biggest and quickest in the OECD, and you say he wasn't saved by the low COVID-related death rates or a double vaccination rate of nearly 95%. Do you think, therefore, that a lot of this started way back when Abbott was knifed?
2: Well, look, I think that uh, that September 14th, 2015, was the day that the Liberal Party started losing on Saturday night. Uh, I think it was the day they abandoned uh, a leader in a way that the Labor Party had made the norm, which uh, I think uh, has reverberated right down the seven years since. But the other side of it, I think, is that uh, since the 2014 budget, particularly, uh, the Liberal Party or the Coalition government basically became much more a transactional, a pragmatic government, really not thinking about what it stood for, what its values were, but just dealing with issue by issue as they arose. And that includes COVID. That includes the natural disasters like the bushfires and the floods. Um, There is no real ideological or moral anchor to the government by its end. And I think voters saw through that, not just uh, on the left, but also on the right. And I think uh, the Prime Minister himself, uh, Mr Morrison, uh, did not uh, show for all his uh, all his personal faith and all his personal moral values, uh, he didn't reflect that in the way that he governed. I mean, he, I think uh, when it came to the crunch and it was a comparison between Mr Morrison and Mr Albanese, Mr Albanese, for all his faults and the fact that he was a gaff machine all through the campaign and probably the Liberals' best asset as far as that went, he actually came across as more likeable, more relatable, uh, a decent bloke and and more, more to the point, I think, a person who you would invite into your lounge room uh, in, in the debate. So whereas... Uh, Scott Morrison, I think, uh, basically only had one setting and that was turning the volume up to 11 and shouting at voters. And voters, I think, after nine years and particularly after the last three years, did not want to be shouted at.
0: Yes, that also happened, I must say, in the concession speech on Saturday night, didn't it? I just felt he was shouting at us as if it was an election rally or a Pentecostal meeting.
2: Oh, I think I'd give him a bit of a, a break on that one, Alan. I mean, you've just lost an election and you're just realising you've not only lost it but losing it big time. Uh, I think you've got to cut him a bit of slack on that one. But but certainly in the debates I felt that, uh, yes, he came across, as, as I wrote for The Spectator, you know, quoting uh, Queen Victoria about the Prime Minister Gladstone way back in the day, uh, where he basically did not know how to relate to her and she complained he addresses me as if I were a public meeting. <laughs> and that's uh, exactly what uh, what Mr Morrison did with the voters right through the campaign. Uh, it was always trying to shout down the opposition, shout down the questions, and, and actually just stick to the talking points rather than, uh, well, changing gears, showing a bit of light and shade, showing a bit of subtlety, showing a bit of the fact that he can be an ordinary bloke. ordinary bloke. I mean, the Albanese, for all his faults, I think actually cut through with that. And uh, I think as a result of that and the fact that he was able to tell his story over and over again, the log cabin to White House story that he, he, he keeps uh, falling back on, Uh, We're going to hear about it all the way to the next election, but it's actually, I think, going to help uh, the new Prime Minister have
0: an extended honeymoon. So basically you're saying the election was won by framing it as a referendum not on Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, but on Scott Morrison, the man.
2: That's right. And in that sense, and whatever you think of Scott Morrison as a Prime Minister, as a politician and a leader, um, I think it sets a dangerous precedent when a party frames its whole campaign effectively on we're not Scott Morrison. He is a nasty, bad, even evil bloke. I mean, some of the Labor Party's advertising and certainly some of the points that they were making, um, I think Jason Clare on the Friday before the election went on television and said uh, Scott Morrison is empathetic without the M. I mean, that mm. that type of insult I, I think is disgraceful. But, um, but I think if you've won an election on the back of that type of tactic it sets a dangerous precedent. Mm. In the future, it will be used by Mm. either side of politics. Just just
0: Just come back to the point that you made, though, that many of these problems were the Liberal Party's own making. Now, there were many Liberal voters who were appalled at the denial of basic freedoms during lockdown, these authoritarian measures. I mean, people actually in the streets with guns, in communities where people had fled from Europe to avoid that sort of stuff... I mean, people arrested sitting on park benches, a pregnant woman arrested for creating a Freedom Day event on Facebook, just encouraging people to protest against lockdowns, arrested in a home, home, not a peep from the national leadership. I mean, that contributed to the alienation of the Liberal Party from the voting public.
2: Well, I think that's true, but I think you've got to also keep in mind that a lot of that uh a lot of that uh, awful stuff, particularly uh, that, that poor woman in um, in Ballarat who was arrested in front of the yeah. children in her pyjamas, uh, that was done by state governments, by mm. state authorities, uh, because one of the things that's been highlighted by the pandemic is in, in this area, the federal government actually could do very little, but I think that the Prime Minister and the coalition government should have been much more active, Correct. much more vocal that's in criticising the, point. In criticizing that's the, the point. and trying to actually yep. knock those... Premiers' heads together, absolutely. so that they
0: acted consistently, but they also
2: acted morally and responsibly. Yeah,
0: absolutely, and should have been upfront saying this will not happen in the country that I lead. What's your take on these teal independents now? The phenomenon around the world, in Britain and America in particular, is that the rich are now voting for the left because they can afford the costs of the reckless policies advocated by the left and the Greens. Shouldn't Peter Dutton, for example, forget these seats, leave them, leave those electorates to the politically impotent members they've sent to Canberra and concentrate on the people that Menzies talked about, the salary earners, the shopkeepers, the skilled artisans, the professional men and women, the farmers. Don't worry about these people that Menzies argued inhabited fashionable suburbs. Menzies called them the defensive and comfortable rich. What are your thoughts, Terry?
2: Well, look, I think you have to keep in mind, Alan, that a lot of those uh, uh, those, those people that Menzies described actually live in those so-called fashionable suburbs, uh, live in electorates like Kuyong and Goldstein and Wentworth. Um, but uh, I think uh, the Liberal Party has to remember it is a broad church of the centre-right. Uh, it can't go too far to the right and it can't go too far to the left. I don't left, think the farmers think and the skilled
0: of... artisans are living in, in, uh, in, in where Turak and, and and Vaucluse...
2: Oh, I think you. I think you're quite, Well, maybe not farmers, but maybe Pitt Street farmers. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but generally speaking, that the, the middle class uh, is. It, you know, mm. The electorate of Higgins, for instance, that got lost to Labor, uh, is not all uh, Tuareg. No, uh, you've got to keep that in mind. But, but I think the thing is. But not all of them voted for Labor. That not, Party, not all of them voted for yeah, Labor. Yeah, but you've got to ensure that. Well, she could have been a teal, except she she was with the Labor Party, the, the successful candidate. But the thing I'm try, I'm trying to make. The point here is uh, that the party has to appeal to a, a broad church mm. of middle Australia. If it mm. basically tries too hard to recover those uh, those voters who they lost on Saturday night in those electorates without mm. thinking about
0: the other end of the spectrum... Just a quick one uh, I before I think we... the Liberal Party's got an existential problem. Just a quick one before we go on, Frydenberg. Uh, you've said that. He's always been openly ambitious an astonishing personal and political network, but you say his friendship group is wide but not deep and these his friendships are often transactional. It's a bit of a disturbing thing to say about somebody, isn't it, that they are in a friendship because of what they can get out of it. What's the future, do you see, of Josh Friedenberg?
2: Well, perhaps I was a little too harsh when I wrote that, but I certainly I think in politics he has been very good at reaching across, uh, becoming friends with uh, a great many people and then, uh, <laughs> as in politics, as in life, uh, you uh, you move on, but but uh, we're going, he's going to find out who his real friends are now. Uh, I think, and and certainly, I think the po- the Liberal Party will feel his loss because he was probably the one candidate, and that includes Peter Dutton. Uh, I think he's the only candidate who was capable is capable of appealing to the left mm. and the right of the Liberal Party. Uh, so where does he come back?
0: Port Electric. What was where, that? Did, where does he come back? Does he go back to Kooyong?
2: Uh I think uh, Kuyong and all those uh, Teal electorates are going to be very hard. Once an independent gets in, it's they can themselves very quickly. Definitely. Uh, you know, There's talk about whether uh, Alan Tudge would vacate Aston in outer suburban Melbourne for Josh Frydenberg. That's uh, something I think the Liberal Party and Mr Tudge perhaps le- should consider. But uh, I think the reality is that Josh Frydenberg's influence is going to be outside parliament for some time and to... But he is still a valuable force within the party. He's a valuable uh, source of ideas and leadership. So this is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party, as it were, and I think Josh (laughs) Frydenberg will do no different.
0: Good on you, Terry. Good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. Love reading your stuff as well. Keep at it. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks, Alan. There he is, Terry Barnes. Well, each day there are new developments as a consequence of what happened last Saturday night. Amongst the more interesting revelations are the conclusions by the Director of the Centre for Asian-Australian Leadership at the ANU, ji Young Lo. The Chinese-Australian voters made their displeasure with the Morrison government's handling of the Australia-China relationship, quote, loud and clear at the ballot box. Lo said, quote, Chinese-Australians have felt like collateral damage. When the bilateral relationship is in trouble, we are the first to feel it, unquote. Now, the Morrison government never seemed to be able to separate the Chinese people from the Chinese leadership. And in the marginal seats like Benelong, Reid, Parramatta and Chisholm, there were swings in suburbs with sizable Chinese Australian communities up to three times larger than the statewide average. For example, in the Sydney electorate of Reid, almost half the voters have Chinese ancestry. There was a massive drift away from the Liberal Party. John Howard's former seat of Bennelong, made safe Liberal by John Alexander, is now back in Labor hands. There was a 13% swing away from the Liberal Party in Eastwood, where 38% of the residents have Chinese ancestry. The swing away from the Liberals at the Eastwood pre-polling centre was even higher, 14%. The same happened in Melbourne, in the seat of Chisholm and Menzies. The Liberal Party's primary vote dropped by more than 15% but 35% of residents in Box Hill have Chinese ancestry. Anthony Albanese has done well following a congratulatory letter from the Chinese Premier and has courteously suggested that the Chinese ban on Australian exports has to be addressed. But there may be more bad news ahead for the Coalition. The new Treasurer, Dr Jim Chalmers, has flagged that his October budget will reveal the nation's finances are in a worse position than Treasury's pre-election update. He said he'd give a detailed statement to the Parliament when it returns on the issue of debt and deficits, though it'd be hard to believe he didn't know what the debt and deficits were, so he's playing some political games here. But anyway, he's warned that households should brace themselves for, quote, a spike in power prices that will make it harder for Australian families to make ends meet. Now I warned about this before the election. Labor seems to be speaking out of both sides of its mouth. If you want to demonise coal-fired power and shut down fossil fuels, then as I've said over and over again, electricity prices will go through the roof. Eventually, Labor will be forced to see that the net zero emissions talk is pie in the sky. If the new Treasurer is saying that we have a full-blown cost-of-living crisis in this country, then he must understand that energy prices feed into everything we produce and use. Pandering to the idiotic left, about net zero emissions by 2030 is only a recipe for making things worse. And there's going to be a dogfight over an update in electricity pricing, allegedly delayed by the Morrison government. Now, Josh Frydenberg in his final budget in March claimed, quote, the government's actions have helped reduce residential electricity costs by 8% and small business costs by 10% over the past two financial years, unquote. But wholesale prices, as I previously told you, more than doubled in the year to March and have increased further since. It will be alleged that the Morrison government amended regulations so that the new electricity price for the coming year wouldn't be released until today. The direction to change the regulation was made on March 31, according to the Australian Energy Regulator. As Dylan McConnell, the energy specialist at the University of Melbourne, has said, it's hard not to see this through a political lens. They didn't want this increase announced during the election campaign," unquote. However, one of the pleasing stories from the new government is the fact that there is to be a review of the role of the Reserve Bank, long overdue. There are many questions it needs to answer, including whether or not the people in Struggle Street were misled about interest rates and bought houses accordingly, when the Reserve Bank suggested that interest rates wouldn't rise until 2024. And given the rise in inflation in other Western countries, why was the Reserve Bank so late to respond with an interest rate increase? Let's be honest, we've dined out for too long on cheap money, but too many young people, sadly, were seduced by the Reserve Bank's constant assertions that interest rates wouldn't rise until about 2024. They now face the train coming down the track that they didn't see. Dr Chalmers has called for the first review of the Reserve Bank in almost four decades. It's a significant initiative. But the good news for the Liberal Party is that the often not well-known Peter Dutton looks set to be the new leader. He warned yesterday what has been his consistent message, that things are going to be tough under Labor. And he nailed it, high interest rates, cost of living, inflation and electricity prices. And he rightly said, quote, Labor talked a big game on the economy. They now have to deliver and we will hold them to account. Peter Dutton is just the man to do it. He won't be taking the Liberal Party to the left or the right. He'll be taking the Liberal Party where it belongs, in the tradition of its creator, Robert Menzies. This week is the 80th anniversary of Menzies' Forgotten People broadcast. Given the triumph of the teals in wealthy electorates, Menzies warned that the real life of this nation was not to be found in, quote, fashionable suburbs or with, quote, the defensive and comfortable rich, unquote. Well, Peter Dutton doesn't have to revisit Menzies because the Menzies edict of 80 years ago is identical to Dutton's instincts. Menzies believed that, quote, salary earners, shopkeepers, skilled artisans, professional men and women, farmers and so on are the backbone of the nation, unquote. Peter Dutton's challenge will be to capture their support. He is immensely well credentialed to do just that. And after a rotten week for the Liberal Party, Peter Dutton is the agent of hope. Look, before we go, and I spoke with David Maddox about this in the UK report last night, there are fears that Boris Johnson's Conservative Party is going the way of its counterpart here in Australia. That is, on the road to being obliterated. That is, if nothing changes. The much-anticipated report into the Downing Street parties has now been handed down by the appointed public servant, Sue Gray. It was anticlimactic in a way. Plenty of talk about 4pm wine time and pizza and prosciutto, along with accompanying photos. None of it is devastating to Boris Johnson, but the big thing here is that the British public, who suffered through harsh and long lockdowns throughout the past two years, were doing so while the Prime Minister and other public servants were holding shindigs in Downing Street. Not the end of the world, but people are rightly annoyed at the hypocrisy of government. Each day we would receive condescending lectures from politicians about what was and wasn't allowed, almost always nonsensical and without any medical or scientific justification, only to have those making the rules, breaking them. It was a period upon which we'll look back and shake our heads. Boris Johnson is running out of credibility and support. He was the anti-establishment figure, remember? The bloke who would deliver the people's will of Brexit. And say whatever you like about Boris Johnson, one thing you cannot deny is that his intelligence trumps that of his opponents. The problem he has is perhaps summed up by one anonymous MP in the Conservative Party, who said, quote, today is the day the PM is safe. Today is also the day the Conservatives lost the next general election, unquote. It's an interesting point. The one thing Boris Johnson will have to face is that voters may think it is time for change after 14 years of the Conservatives in charge. That was a factor here in our election. Another factor for him which most certainly happened here with Scott Morrison, is that Boris has forgotten who delivered him power in the first instance. Scott Morrison had his quiet Australians, who he later abandoned. Boris Johnson had those in middle and Northern England, or as they called it, the Red Wall. He took all those traditional Labor seats. For them, he stood up to the technocrats, the Eurocrats and the do-gooders. He was rewarded in the 2019 general election with the Tories winning 43.6% of the vote, only 0.3 points below Margaret Thatcher's phenomenal triumph in 1979. Alistair Heath, in what is a perfect summation of where Boris Johnson is, writes in the UK Telegraph, and I quote, Gray's report describes a delusional, arrogant elite who thought the stringent rules they had imposed on the public didn't apply to them a politically toxic state of affairs in the middle of a cost of living crisis. He goes on, Johnson's conservatives were meant to be different, humble servants of the public, implementers of the general will. Instead, they've turned out to be just as bad as other ruling castes, breaking manifesto promises with as much abandon as they ignored the COVID rules, convinced that they could get away with everything. It is the gulf, he said, between what was promised and what has actually happened that has hurt Johnson." Unquote. Let this be a lesson for any government, that the public are eventually a wake-up to your behaviour and your unwillingness to represent the electorate's views in the Parliament. So, Albo, be warned. That's it from me. Look, Looking forward to seeing you again on ADH-TV next week. Check the app, ADH-TV. It's all there today and every day. So thanks for being with us. See you Monday night. Good night.